91.3 FM WVUD and WVUD HD1 Newark in the great state of Delaware. I'm Bill Humphrey, and thanks for listening. The following episode was recorded on October 17, 2016, and produced by me at my studio in Newton, Massachusetts. This week, Persephone, Greg, and Jonathan joined me to discuss the Harvard Dining Hall staff strike and other current trends in U.S. unionism. All that is coming up right now on Arsenal for Democracy. Arsenal for Democracy is available for download on Wednesdays at arsenalfordemocracy.com and from iTunes. We air the show in Delaware on 91.3 FM and stream it from wvud.org on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. Eastern. Follow us on Twitter at AFD Radio or like us on Facebook. You're listening to Arsenal for Democracy. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. On the line with me is uh, Greg from Virginia. Hi, Greg. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. And uh, for our first segment, uh, returning to the show, welcome back, uh, Persephone, calling in from Michigan. Thanks, Bill. So Persephone is going to be joining us, as she often does uh, in segments on Arsenal for Democracy, uh, to talk about unionism and uh, uh, organizing, especially around campuses and strikes. And uh, for those who may not remember, uh, Persephone is involved in campus organizing. And uh, right now, near Newton, Massachusetts, home of Arsenal for Democracy, uh, we have uh, a fairly significant campus strike going on, uh, although it's not students in this case, um, which is the, uh, the dining hall workers at Harvard University. For those who are listening, you may be aware that uh, I inadvertently had a viral tweet about that, which as we're recording that is now up to uh, 25,000 retweets and uh, a couple million impressions at least on Twitter. And then also um, apparently I'm told it's sort of been the talk of a lot of campuses uh, around the uh, around uh, the United States. Um, Megavi. Yes, uh, Dead's been referred to it as a Megavi tweet, which I guess is short for mega viral, but I don't think I've ever heard anyone call it that. So we're going to talk a little bit about what the strike is that's going on there uh, and a whole bunch of other labor actions that have been happening around the country. While we were on hiatus, uh, there was almost a one-day strike by the Massachusetts Nurses Association. And I should specify at Brigham and Women's Hospital because they have a different unit for um, pretty much all the hospitals uh, that they represent in Massachusetts. And my mother is part of that one. And there was a uh, also a, a, a one-day strike. I don't know if it actually got averted like the Brigham uh, or if it happened, but there was a, uh, an authorized one-day strike at uh, Newton-Wellesley Hospital. So I've been uh, participating in a lot of uh, uh, labor actions around here. And then there was, of course, the uh, IBEW um, uh, Verizon CWA strike that was also happening. 
uh, here in Massachusetts. And also, uh, I think that one was a nationwide one, if I remember correctly. Um, but I certainly am interfacing with them at the local level. So Persephone, what is going on at Harvard University right now with this strike? What is motivating it and what kind of action uh, is going on? Well, uh, what's happening is that, um, you know, the main purpose of the union being to create a collective bargaining agreement or a contract with the university to represent the workers. They've been working on negotiating that contract and the university has not responded positively to their demands. They're asking that the university not increase the cost of health care and um, they are trying to get an annual minimum pay. And they're trying to get an annual minimum pay of $35,000 because the hourly workers don't get paid between semesters uh, because Harvard classes aren't in session, so they aren't able to work during that time. So they're going on strike to defend their demands and uh, to show their importance to the functioning of the university. I specifically, in my tweet, there wasn't a whole lot of room, so I had to kind of pick and choose what I was going to talk about. I had mentioned uh, living wages, and that was an aspect that many people seemed to react. Uh, there, there weren't actually that many negative reactions to what I said, surprisingly. But among the negative reactions, there was definitely some people taking issue with me characterizing it as a fight for living wages, because I guess they, you know, Harvard's contention is that they get paid more than surrounding universities and they had offered raises, et cetera. But uh, I know that uh, state representative uh, Marjorie Decker, who represents that part of Cambridge, I believe, I know she represents definitely some parts of Cambridge. She said uh, on Twitter that for a family, the market rent for just Cambridge alone, not even the rest of Boston, which has even more expensive areas and a lot of it, the housing prices are really going up, but just Cambridge alone, it's like $41,000 a year just for the rent without, you know, your health insurance costs and your food and your, you know, anything else that comes up. What was the number you quoted for, for what they're trying to get as a sort of annual uh, pay? Um, they're trying to get uh, $35,000. So yeah. $6,000 less, less than uh, that rent cost. Yeah. And I noticed that like a lot of the reaction that I was getting, uh, the, you know, the negative uh, commentary on this was not like from Harvard people or whatever. It was from people who weren't connected at all to Harvard and have never lived in the Boston area as far as I could tell and were commenting from places like, you know, somewhere in Texas. I mean, there were a lot of definitely disparaging comments about service workers in general in that, but more specifically this because a lot of people these days I've noticed now try to like argue everything in terms of data that they've read, but they don't necessarily like look that closely. They were saying like, oh, $33,000 a year. That's, you know, more than many Americans. I think it might be around the median income at this point in the United States, um, you know, and that they would be lucky to get that and et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, 33000 is is significantly lower than the cost of living uh, there. And, and that 41000 figure is nowhere near the overall uh, median cost of living in the metro Boston area, which I had looked up. Uh, that, I believe, was something approaching or depending on the specific uh, local area within the Boston area was uh, approaching or exceeding, I think, like $70,000 a year. Um, some areas are definitely more like 90000 but probably dining hall workers typically aren't working there. 
Um, and and the like the transportation situation. I know Greg makes fun of me sometimes because I complain about like how long it takes to get very short distances um, within Massachusetts. Because and where do I live? You, you're living in, in DC. yeah Metro DC, which I'm aware <laughs> also has some pretty significant uh, metropolitan transit issues. Um, but you had all these people who are like from Texas saying, well, why don't they just live you know in x locate like they would like throw a dart at the map basically and say like why don't they live here i looked that's an inexpensive place to live and it's quote unquote nearby it's nearby if you're driving at like two in the morning with no traffic on the highway it's not nearby if you don't have a car or you have to you, know, you do have a car but you're fighting through all the you know commuter traffic um i, I have become very familiar with some of the travel times by doing the campaign that i did uh, because there were 32 cities and towns, and a lot of them were along like 128 and some of those um, arterials inside, you know, p- uh, perpendicular to that. It's not that easy to get to get around. So you have a lot of these dining hall workers that may work, they may live in quite far away in Boston, which is a very large geographical area city in terms of the layout of it. I, I know that there are some larger like southern cities that have sort of morphed into taking over th- everything else. But, um, you know, as they say, Boston's geography was designed by, like, cows in the 1600s. So, you know, it's not necessarily the most straightforward thing to get from point A to point B. You have people commuting two hours each way um, to do these dining hall jobs. And then, as Persephone said, they're not working during the non-school parts of the year, but they're also not allowed to claim unemployment. So they were trying to, like, work out uh, a system for that. I, I don't know. To me, I, like my instinct is is to support this right off the bat because I mean Harvard has the largest endowment in the country. I like I'm I'm really having a hard time with this sort of knee jerk reaction, which I don't think is limited to conservatives. And I don't know Persephone if that's been your impression too, but it seems like a lot of this is coming from like self styled liberals. Um, we've talked on the show previously on a couple episodes ago about sort of this increasingly clear split between liberals and basically anything to the left of them that used to get kind of blurred together for a long time. Or at least there wasn't a particularly vocal and vibrant actual left in the United States for quite a while. Legacies of McCarthyism, et cetera. And then, you know, the period before social media made it easy to get that platform. But uh, Persephone, has that been your take on this as well, that, that a lot of this backlash to the strike seems to be coming more from like elite liberal uh, quarters? Yeah, I'm going to respond to that point. And I also want to get back to what you were saying about um, transportation and about the cost of living in the Boston area. So to your point about liberals versus leftists, I think that um, it's a bit of a tough spot for a lot of liberals, Democrat identif- people who identify with the Democratic Party. Um, and things like that. I think labor is sort of a tough spot because we've seen a rise in, and I say that not in the condescending way in which it's often used, but in a sincere way and an appreciative way, but there's definitely been a rise um, in emphasis on identity politics in the Democratic Party, um, you know, especially in terms of LGBTQ people and, um, you know, the fight for marriage equality did a lot for that. And um, now, um, there's also a lot of effort um, to respond with varying levels of success to Black Lives Matter. Um, but one identity that we very rarely consider in a political light in the United States is the working class identity. And I think that once upon a time, the Democratic Party really had a 
an investment in that identity. But I think that's been lost. I think that labor, which originally had a very radical history, has had a bit of a split. People who are members of a union used to reliably vote Democrat. And now that's less the case. People think of union workers and they think mostly white men and they think the same demographic that, you know, a Trump supporter and things like that. And that's not true. There's a lot of increase in public sector unions. I believe I'd have to back up the statistics on that, but I believe them that most uh, union members right now are actually women or most unionized jobs. Um, and I'd have to check on that data. That's my understanding as well, is that it is yeah. is uh, definitely pretty close to half or more women and that there's a pretty large contingent um, of women of color. And and we'll circle back to that. I don't want to get you off track here. But, yeah, we can come back to that point, too. Yeah. Um, so I think that the vision that that liberals who are not themselves in unionized jobs have of unions doesn't necessarily reflect what unions are actually about. Um, and I think that there's a discomfort there. Um, Massachusetts is, I think, one of the places where uh, unions are still very, very involved in politics. Um, and Michigan, where I am currently, is another example of that. But uh, you have to remember, I mean, the South is sort of a, a union desert. There's no, there's very little organized labor there. Um, there are right to work laws. Uh, even for teachers. You and I have talked previously about, you know, how what a monumental achievement it was to get um, UAW certification at the Volkswagen plant in Tennessee. I mean, that was sort of and that was that only happened because Volkswagen America backed them on that. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible that even with the support of Volkswagen, uh, which wanted to have that kind of relationship where they could just negotiate all contracts through a union, it was still almost impossible. So I think that, yeah, people aren't, um, a lot of people don't understand unions. They don't have exposure to unions. And I think that if more people did, things would change. There's an increasing divide. There's always been huge amounts of wealth inequality in this country. But I mean, we've talked a lot on the show about the shrinking middle class and things like that. And what that also does is it creates a situation where working class people and upper middle class or upper class people who might even have sympathetic politics just don't communicate. And, and there's no discourse between those groups. Um, and so that creates a large part of this problem. I, I, my impression, too, you know, to get back to the issue of sort of a liberal backlash is that um, – you know, the, the, the emphasis that that Harvard put out in response to this strike, and that seems to be what a lot of um, liberals are using to cover for their sort of antipathy toward this strike, if if they are part of that group, and I'm not saying all liberals have been, um, is, the, is the emphasis on the, uh, the fact that the wages are already higher at Harvard for the dining hall staff than for um, even just... Uh, other union members in the same union, Unite Here Local 26, um, at other campuses around uh, eastern Massachusetts, because there are many, many campuses uh, in eastern Massachusetts. And so there's a lot of uh, unionized dining hall workers there if they're fortunate enough to be at a unionized campus. But I've tried to make the case to people that it, it doesn't really matter whether or not they're getting paid more than the other folks around them, because making a sort of like invisible hand argument as to where the wages should be doesn't really relate to who has these jobs and what they need to survive on. 
And, yeah. you know, I, I, and, and you, I'm sure you can speak to this, but there's, I keep seeing over and over again, and this tends to be more from the conservatives, honestly, than the liberals. Um, they say, you know, if you wanted to make more money, you should work a different job. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that is an argument that's pretty easy to unravel. I mean, people don't necessarily have the resources, the education, or even, you know, the qualifications for other jobs. Other jobs might not be available. You know, the Boston area certainly has a lot of jobs. But they're also very, very competitive. We have a lot of people here. And I understand why people outside of Massachusetts are confused as to why these workers are demanding $35,000. I mean, to be honest, I had no idea how cheap it was to live outside of Massachusetts when I first left. I was amazed that, you know, I know people paying $200 for rent. That's incredible to me because in the Boston area, that's unthinkable. Um, and I think the reverse is true. People outside Massachusetts don't understand just how expensive it is. And it's not as simple as, you know, moving somewhere else or getting a job um, in a different field. It's just these aren't realistic options for people. You can't you know, moving is expensive and getting a different job to say, get a job that pays better is saying you need to take personal responsibility and get paid more. And that's what these workers are doing. You know, they're choosing, they're saying we're valuable. Our job matters to the university and we want to be paid more. They're creating the situation for their job to be better paid. And I think that um, you know, conservatives who argue just get a different job are missing the entire point of labor unions. Right. Well, I mean, you know, I, I keep seeing these reactions of people saying like, uh, well, this is, you know, you'd be lucky to get th that kind of pay somewhere else in the country. And and not just the annual amount, you know, the, the 33 or 35 or whatever that we've been talking about, but also uh, specifically, they almost get paid $22 an hour right now, although, again, they aren't working for the full year. Um, and the... They, they are requesting, I think, a couple more dollars beyond that or a few more dollars beyond that per hour. Um, and that that does seem high to a lot of people if there were if their familiarity is with the wages for service jobs in Texas or something like that and, and with the associated cost of living. But, you know, I looked at the MIT living wage calculator and they said, you know, just generically in the abstract, maybe you could make the case that a living wage for the area would be $12.87 or something like that, although Cambridge itself has already boosted it to 15 as a legal minimum. Um, but, the, but the actual, like, statistical average, if you are a working parent or one of two working parents and your your household has two kids uh for for a single parent household the cost is 31 dollars an hour is what you'd have to be making to to have a living wage and even if you have a two parent uh you know working household um it's still i think 26 dollars an hour so like that i understand that's a really difficult concept to wrap your head around if you don't if you don't have a familiarity with the cost of living here but right now boston is one of the most expensive places on the planet in terms of cost of living i think it's like usually in the top 15 or so and and that's like definitely difficult to grapple with i, I want to in a moment i want to get back to uh, some of the points that that we've alluded to you were going to bring up transportation and we, i want to talk a little bit more about some of the identity stuff um, but Greg, I just wanted to quickly check in with you uh, from the D.C. area. You know, Persephone mentioning that where she is, some people can get rents for $200 uh, a month. Uh, obviously, D.C. is uh, similar to Boston in terms of its cost. But I don't know if you could give us a perspective on what some of the costs might be around there. 
It's probably actually more expensive than Boston. I think that's it's one of the most expensive areas in the country. I think probably only surpassed by San Francisco, L.A., and New York City. Um, right. I am in a pretty good shape right now because. Um, you know, I live in Virginia, a little bit across the Potomac River, so it's not uh, quite as bad. But if you're talking about, you know, Montgomery County in Maryland, like that is routinely the richest county in the United States of America. The reason that is, is because people have to be rich to live there because that's how much the rent is. And you can't afford to be, you know, making $35,000 a year if you were to live there and then, you know, commute into D.C. to maybe like work at, I don't know, Georgetown's dining hall or GW's dining hall or something like that. Now, how bad is your commute to get in living a little bit outside in uh, northern Virginia? I'm extremely lucky. I will say that. And so my commute is probably it's only one metro stop. I'm I, I mean, like people come to my house and they they ask me, like, how much do you pay for this? Are you serious? And so people are sort of like incredulous that I get to live where I get to live. And um, I'm so close to work and whatnot. But that's certainly not. I remember um, you had a bad commute at the previous place you were li- or one of the previous places like I in did. Maryland. How, well, I how did. long was that? That was an hour each way at least. So I'm definitely, and that's the thing is that like from um, a person that has had, I've had two hour commutes each way before just in order to save money. And I'm telling you that your quality of life improves so dramatically. There are studies on this. Your quality of life improves so dramatically when your commute is cut down because it, you know, takes your day if you work like eight or nine hours a day and then you have two hours of commute on top of that. It means that you're working essentially like 11 hours a day because what are you going to get done you know, commuting or whatever, besides like sitting in traffic and grinding your teeth or, you know, standing on the crowded metro platform waiting for like a train to come in my situation and what have you. So in terms of like even from a public health perspective, it's much, much better for people to live close to where they work because it's just it's better for, you know, their their mental health, their physical health, all these kinds of things. Yeah. And if you're getting an hourly wage, too, I mean, you're not getting paid typically for the travel time so like we have to keep that in mind as well you know that these folks are having to do these long commutes and and it's and it's a trade-off it's either you have a long commute and live sort of moderately close too far away or you you know can't afford your rent and you live right nearby i mean you know it's it's not it's not a great situation i i know non-union workers who live in Cambridge or lived in Cambridge, like right out of college. And, you know, it'd be like seven of them sharing an apartment that was meant for like two or three people because that was what they could afford. And you can question whether or not they should have moved somewhere else. But like question, I, I, I feel kind of weird about questioning that because I don't know what people's life situation is. And I don't know what the commute would be like and that sort of thing. Oh, and I think the interesting thing is that we never ask, like, for a thought experiment, the flip side of this. We always ask, or not we, but, you know, people that are sort of more antagonistic to this 
um, whole unionization idea always ask, well, why don't these people just move? But like, let's think about the reverse of that. Like, why doesn't Harvard just move to a place where labor is cheaper so that they can decide to pay them less? But nobody ever asks that question. <laughs> but, you know, like Harvard is where it is. Can you imagine right. Harvard just picking up stakes, though, and being like, well, we had a good run as an Ivy, but uh, we're uh, we're moving to. Um... Maine. Yeah, they're, they're going well, to cool. move Harvard to Maine. So, you know, you're going to have to go to like Bangor or whatever. But why is that any more ridiculous to ask an institution to like move someplace where it's cheaper for labor if they don't want to pay the labor the what they're asking to like live? Because like Harvard has thirty five billion dollars. Like y'all know they could do it. They could pick up and move if they wanted to. Right. I mean, like it's it's probably actually more realistic than to like ask somebody that's living paycheck to paycheck to like, you know, save up enough money to hire a moving van to like find some place to move. And then they're going to go move someplace cheaper. But then their commute becomes like 90 minutes each way. And that's just like so ridiculous. And I don't understand why we're like not asking institutions that have the means to actually afford these types of things to do it. Like, OK, so if you don't want to move, pay them more, pay them what it costs to live in the area, because that's the talent pool that you're um, that's your that you're drawn from. That's your workforce. And you decided to, you know, establish Harvard in this place. And maybe you didn't know that it was going to cost as much as it's going to as it currently costs. But it's like, uh, where did they get off and like telling these people like, oh, you need to move. We're not going to accommodate you at all, either in, you know, moving our campus or giving you more money so that you can live and work here. Persephone. I just want to add that, yeah, I mean, if you're an hourly worker, it's super important that you're that you be compensated. So if these people who are saying, well, just move farther out are interested in paying the wages um, of these workers while they are, you know, commuting Harvard, you know, be my guest. But it's not realistic to expect somebody who's already working, you know, a, a physical job that involves standing on your feet all day. Um, that involves being active, um, you know, walking around, sometimes being in hot environments, asking somebody in those circumstances to commute, you know, an hour, an hour and a half, two hours, which some of these workers may already be doing is the other thing. Yeah. That's just absurd. I wanted to circle back to some of the identity stuff. Uh, something that I've been talking a lot about this year, especially on Twitter, is how, you know, sort of like how the media uses uh, millennials as shorthand for 20-something white people, which is not actually accurate on either count. Um, it's, you know, a more diverse generation, and it's not just 20-year-olds uh, or 20-somethings. Uh, there's also a tendency to refer to not just unions, as you mentioned, but just the working class as a whole um, as, as shorthand for uh, white people of a certain income strata and maybe a certain uh, profession or occupation. My theme that I've been hitting on in response to that is the working class is not white and male. Um, and I think there is data to support that contention, especially uh, for the, you know, the, the workers in our generation that and I and I would argue that it's a mistake to even suggest that it has always been white men that are the working class. 
because uh, there's this narrative about women entering the workforce in general. You know, oh, they got a special opportunity in World War II, and then they went back out of the workforce for a while, and then they came, you know, back into the workforce in the 60s and 70s or something like that. But that ignores all of the, you know, many black and Latino women that had been working in the workforce the whole time. Um, and it just wasn't counted as, quote unquote, work, especially because it tended to be either service things or domestic stuff. No, I mean, I think that even if you're looking at the labor movement and its history, I mean, you have Lucy Parsons, who was a black uh, and indigenous woman. You have Mother Jones, who was also a woman. I mean, these are huge figures um, who, um, you know, were both women and uh, one of whom was a woman of color. Um, and they're super important. Um, and I think that gets overlooked. Uh, I just wanted to uh, ask, though, you have some familiarity with, you know, obviously, certainly Michigan labor scene, but also uh, the Boston labor scene. My impression has been, and I don't know if this is incorrect, but my impression has been that increasingly a lot of the leadership of the unions continues to be, uh, you know, the as you said, the burly white guys, usually of Italian or Irish ancestry, and that that, that, that doesn't seem to represent or uh, fully reflect, at least, the rank and file in a lot of those unions. I, I think that's accurate um, to some degree. I don't have, again, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I would say that especially in terms of the um, statewide and national leadership, um, that is the case for many unions. So, there's a distinction between the local, which is the um, specific union to uh, usually to a specific employer, to several employers. Um, so you have the statewide leadership, which is, as it sounds, statewide. And then you have the national leadership. Um, so, for example, my local is the Graduate Employees Organization of the University of Michigan. The statewide union is AFT Michigan. And then the national union is AFT, which is connected to the AFL-CIO. So you have many different sort of stages or levels of structure. And I think that things have not trickled up. An individual local might have, you know, a whole slew of different presidents, different, you know, active members who go through, who are from all different backgrounds. But it's a lot harder in terms of the actual statewide and national leadership for that to for that to be the case. It's also true, I think, in terms of organizers. So staff people who are paid by these unions to help with negotiation, to help with union efforts and things like that, there's a huge discrepancy between what people are paid who are on the ground um, working with unions or working with not yet unionized workers to create a union. Some of these people are working 60-hour weeks and aren't making that much themselves despite being labor organizers. And there's a discrepancy between that and then some of the leadership higher up who can make $100,000 a year or more. And I think that's a pretty unfortunate situation right. for labor to be in. Uh, the other thing that had come up actually was that in in my tweet that went viral, since I was part of the other thing that I was talking about in the tweet was related to a grant that someone gave Harvard, um, and uh, that was about uh, black poverty, and I was sort of setting up an ironic contrast with the strike, and there were some people who like thought that I was, I guess making assumptions or something about the composition of the union. And in fact, the study was not just black poverty. It was black and Latino. I couldn't fit it in the tweet. And I would say that 
to my understanding, many of the members, if not most of the members uh, in the dining hall staff are uh, either black or Latino and generally, uh, I think, more than half women. Um, and so I thought it was kind of a valid comparison to make, although some people took issue with that. Um, and when I went down to the strike uh, on, I guess it was Friday, uh, I did, I had gotten there after the picket had ended and I, you know, it was, there were some white organizers. There were a couple of union guys that were at the stereotypical type that you were talking about of what people imagine, uh, union, uh, men to be. Um, but then there were also like, uh, Brazilian immigrants and, um, you know, black women that were checking in, you know, after the strike, cause you have to get your card punched and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, you know, I just, I, I, I felt like this is, you know, this is what I think a lot of the unions actually are in reality, which is contrary to what the perception is. Um, you know, especially uh, any of these Fight for 15 rallies that SEIU and all the different SEIU branches have really been pushing, um, whether it's for healthcare workers or whether it's for fast food workers or home health aid workers, that kind of thing. Um, these rallies have been pushed by uh black women and Latina women who are really on the forefront and also in extremely economically vulnerable positions. And that was something that some of the strike organizers were telling me because I was asking about what the like relative level of security is to going on strike now versus like, say, at the height of the recession or something. And, uh, you know, it's it's dicey for them right now. Right. I mean, some of these people, they're they're really risking a lot to do this. And that's been the case, too, for the you know, a lot of the uh, non-white women working at McDonald's all over the country who've been going on these strikes, especially when they don't have unions, um, you know, that they're, they're really taking the risks. And it's so frustrating to me to see it get written off by, and th this is entirely coming from liberals because they're reacting to the identity politics stuff. They write it off as saying the working class and, you know, union left, that kind of thing. That's all just white guys. I mean, that drives me up the wall. Yeah, it's pretty outrageous. I think that we just have these images in our brain that I'm not entirely sure where they come from other than, you know, the sort of importance of the automotive industry um, in uh, the United States labor history. I think that probably contributes. For, for me, growing up, the union I had the most or the union members that I had the most contact with were my teachers, um, you know, most of whom were women. Um, because it was Newton South, um, because it was the Newton public school system, most of them are also white. But um, I mean, teachers unions are a great example of something that really bucks the trend um, or bucks the stereotype of what union workers look like. I feel and like people things. put teachers unions in a different category mentally. Like that's the that's the thing that I've also noticed. And I, I don't want to get too far off track here, but like, come on, like that we keep on getting these self-styled liberals who like seem to be nominally for unions right up until it's the teachers union. They'll even defend a police union before they'll defend a teachers union. And they say that the teachers unions are everything that's wrong with our public schools. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty striking. I, I would say that, um, I mean, I would, I would say that the resistance to teachers unions is connected to the other sorts of anti-union sentiment. It's just articulated differently. Um, and the same thing goes for nurses. I think that nurses and teachers, because they're in these professions that involve taking care of other people's needs, 
think they really get vilified a lot when they go on strike and when they do things like this. And I think dining services is a similar situation in a different way. Because they're These feeding people... America's elite children. Right, exactly. They're they're in this position where they're providing food. Um, and when they go on strike, that gets taken away. And these poor Harvard children are left with frozen meals. Um, and it's so devastating and terrible. Um, and I mean, I think it's really appalling. I mean, it's one thing to have, I mean, it's, it's bad enough to have scab labor. So to have people come in and get paid to take a union position while a union is on strike. But Harvard has decided to ask for volunteers <laughs> to like to take pl the place of these workers. And that's just totally appalling and probably violates a lot of laws. I mean, that's literally free labor. And what was the deal too, they, with the food? There was something involving the food donations. Oh, they oh. were going to stop. They were going to stop giving um, um, food to the food bank at the end of every day that that uh, that was going to cease as well. And uh, during the, the time of the strike, which is like, OK, uh, what are you guys doing? Well, Persephone, Do you not know how bad optically? Persephone, you said, I mean, optics, obviously, Harvard is not doing well on that front. But Persephone, what was the reason that they gave for that? Or or the or was there a hypothesis as to why they were doing that? So I'm not sure about the food bank situation, but what I do know about is um, some of the law students were using, um, you know, the, the, the law school has a budget for events, um, which they give to students to put on different events and to get food for that. And so some of the law students had been using these funds to help feed uh, workers who are on strike. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And so Harvard Law School is no longer providing food at events um, as long as the strike lasts. I love that they're like, they're already Harvard, just like right off the bat. And then they're just like, how can we take our Harvardness to the next level and really step it up? Well, we're going to cut off uh, food uh, allotments for our law students because they're traitorous sympathizers to the working class. And uh, <laughs> we're going to cut off our food bank donations because we're literally cartoon villains. Yeah, it's pretty awful. So uh, b before we close out, though, on this segment, Persephone, what other labor actions are going on around the country right now that you think people should be aware of besides uh, the Harvard situation? I know uh, prisons, we should probably try to do a, like an episode or something on it. I know there's various podcasts that are like way better expertise and have done actual interviews with people part of those prison strikes but um is there any like what should people be keeping an eye on if they're interested in like this sort of surge that i'm seeing of uh of uh strike actions or threatened strike actions well i think that first of all knowing what has happened uh and what's going on is always good i for a while was just googling on google news strike just to know who was out there who was um bargaining and things like that but um the harvard thing is interesting in the context of the um, MIT custodial workers oh, union right. who recently, yeah, they recently bumped up their uh, wage, and I think they're the highest paid uh, janitors in Massachusetts, if That's not awesome. anywhere um, in the country. Um, so that was really great. That was SDIU, I believe. And then there's also there have been, you know, in the Boston area, I think Tufts also had a recent barding session. Personally, I will always plug graduate unionizing attempts. And with the recent ruling that private, uh, that 
graduate employees at private schools can unionize. There's been a lot of activity there. That was um, a National Labor Relations Board ruling, right? That's correct. Yeah. Um, and so I think we're going to start to see a lot of private universities, including perhaps Harvard. We're going to see efforts there um, by graduate students um, to receive contracts for um, their paid work as instructors. Uh, just very briefly, I met the uh, young women of Wellesley College down at the uh, uh, doing some solidarity stuff at in, in Harvard and Harvard Square, um, who are undergraduates who are trying to organize for better. Um, I don't know if they're, they're I don't think they're trying to form a union per se, but they're trying to get better rules regarding work study students uh, uh, at, at Wellesley College, because at the moment it's not necessarily need based and it's not necessarily tailored to the specific like scheduling needs that someone who is very low income and does not have a lot of money to work with uh, would need if they're going to do a work study program. Yeah. And I think, um, I think that's, I, well, I didn't realize that Wellesley was doing that. I know that um, at the, here at the university of Michigan, some student workers were working on that as part of the fight for 15 campaign. Just one more thing before I know you have to get going, but, I also think it's important to really underline that if you are involved in union efforts, you are protected. So if you're organizing a union, um, if you put your name on a list that's interested in forming a union, anything like that, then there are protections against you're getting fired. Whereas um, if you go on strike randomly out of the blue um, or if you try to do some other program, there's no law protecting you from getting fired for that. Um, it's really unions are spe specifically protected, but other kinds of organizing may not be. Well, folks, uh, you heard it here first. That's a pitch for your next uh, BuzzFeed think piece on uh, how forming a union is like putting your name on the list for Dumbledore's army. And you have to do that or yeah. don't get you. All right. That's uh, that's terrible <laughs> think pieces from Bill um, on uh, this week's Arsenal for Democracy episode. Uh, anyway, uh, thank you so much, Persephone, for joining us to talk about some of the stuff that's currently happening in unionism around the United States. We hope to have you back uh, on the show soon to talk about this some more. Um, certainly, you know, a topic very close to my heart. And I, I believe very strongly, you know, in line with the theme of this show, which is that it's a show for millennials by millennials, uh, is that we should be promoting unionism to our own generation and explaining how they can revitalize the union movement, which has been a little bit uh, behind, uh, you know, or, or declining in some ways until fairly recently. And we hope this is the start of a, a trend in the opposite direction. So Persephone, thank you so much for joining us from the University of Michigan. Thank you so much for having me. Stick around. Arsenalfordemocracy.com and WVUD will be right back in just a moment. <laughs> You're still listening to Arsenal for Democracy. I'm your host, Bill Humphrey. Still on the line with me from Virginia is Greg. Hey, Greg. Hey, Bill. And uh, now joining me in studio is uh, Jonathan Cohn returning to the show. Hey, Jonathan. Hey, Bill. So we've been talking a little bit uh, before you got here about um, unionism in general, some strike actions, and specifically uh, the situation uh, with regard to uh, Harvard. And um, I guess that, like, the big reason that we were talking about that was because I had this viral tweet, which Greg and I and uh, Persephone in the last segment were talking a little bit about. Um, what I said in that was 
Harvard University just got a $10 million grant to study black poverty in Boston area. The dining hall staff are on strike for living wages. And uh, that's at uh, more than 25,000 retweets at this point. And then I guess like also um, Fight for 15 and uh, various like radical magazines and stuff were sharing screenshots of it on Facebook. So then it was like the talk of all the college campuses. There's this tweet's been going in waves like there's uh, various sort of like media personalities retweeting it. And then it'll be like all the unions in a wave retweet it. The, the fascinating thing is that not a lot of people fact-checked me on this, which I found interesting. I think they, like, looked at my bio and decided I wouldn't make it up because uh, my bio mentions, you know, doing this and also um, the Globalist, where I work. Um, as it turns out, the Boston Globe was a little also too hung up on trying to get a pithy headline out of the story. So it, they had said in their print headline that this was $10 million to study poverty. And, and that was, you know, obviously very ironic in itself. But uh, in reality, it was a $3 million study grant, $1 million from the Ford Foundation, $2 million from Glenn Hutchins. And then the rest of it was just going to the Glenn Hutchins Center, which I thought for sure that this guy had to be like an African-American guy from the finance world, like a philanthropist with an interest that was reasonable and you could understand where it was coming from. I don't personally know what the deal is with Glenn Hutchins. I didn't look too closely into him. I am like a little uncomfortable with like a white alum from Harvard donating a gazillion dollars to put his name first on the Glenn Hutchins Center that already exists and then to make an additional $10 million grant for this. The other thing is that the Boston Globe had pointed out that there have already been some studies very recently uh, on black poverty in Boston. Um, but yeah, it's been kind of interesting. I don't know what you guys were thinking about the like how this tweet blew up. It, I really didn't think it was going to get that much play. I was just going to note quickly that a good solution to poverty is to give people money. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And, <laughs> and like, you can pay, you can pay me the ten $10 million dollars. <laughs> right. Yeah. Jonathan, give him the money. I, I <laughs> yeah. I got a lot of uh, responses like that actually of people saying, "Oh, like here's my solution. Give him more money. Now give me half of that." Like, <laughs> well, you know, and, and 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 then there were people who didn't understand that I wasn't. I was never saying that the money itself should like that Harvard should be using it to pay the striking workers. People were a little confused on that point. I was merely pointing out like two very bad situations at harvard or yeah. questionable at minimum situations at harvard a juxtaposition yes uh but greg go ahead people were caping really hard for harvard though that I, that i found very strange that people were like oh i can't believe that you're uh besmirching the glenn hutchins center for trying to study black poverty i think it was like i think when you get a tweet that that that's that big don't let it go to your head but when you get a tweet that is that big that there's like all this like willful misinterpretation of it. And obviously some stuff gets lost in translation because you only have 140 characters to make your point or whatever. But I mean, I thought it was, I thought it was a good point and I thought it was pithy and I thought that that's why, you know, people shared it so widely, but yeah, there were these like weird misinterpretations of it. Like, Oh yeah, you can just use the $10 million to pay the workers or like, Oh, you know what I would do to help black poverty in the Boston area. I would just give them the $10 million. And I'm thinking like, Y'all know it's like a bigger problem than like $10 million is going to solve, yeah. right? It's like there's and, like systemic racism and and uh, and all of these like yeah. very, very serious things that even $10 million isn't going to solve. Right. But again, 
you know, ironic juxtaposition. Sure. And to the point about the Glenn Hutchins Center itself, again, I am not that familiar with the center. This was really not that strong of a critique. I mean, I literally didn't even make a critique in the tweet. It was sort of, there was an implied critique, but I'd never made explicit in that tweet what it was because of lack of room. Um, and so people had various interpretations. I did hear from some uh, black academics, sometimes self-referring to as black academics, and, like, there were concerns both, you know, I got messages or exchange messages on Twitter, you know, or, or Facebook. I saw some people were a little upset with it. And, like, I, I'm sympathetic. Like, again, I, I don't know that much about the work of the center. I'm sure that they're doing some really important work. At the same time, there is a very strong current of criticism against sort of Harvard in general. And I know Harvard's a big place with lots of different arms that don't necessarily talk to each other. Um, but, you know, folks have pointed out I, uh, Jordan Berg Powers, for example, um, you know, I saw him post something on Facebook about it. He's from Mass Alliance. And, and you know, he was commenting that, like, there is a concern here that that, that Harvard research tends to produce suggested solutions that are sort of neoliberal in mm -hmm. character rather than redistributive. Know, yeah, exactly. Yeah, kind of like what's often viewed with say, the Harvard Kennedy School as kind of a feeder for elite circles. You know, so there's that concern. There is also the concern of like, why, like, are philanthropists dictating? Because it's not, you yeah. know, there were there were some interesting conservative reactions where they they assumed that this was a government grant, right? Because that that fit into their like preconceived mm -hmm. notions was that this had to be a government grant to a liberal institution, which is also hypocritical, right? Like, so so I got some of that too, and this was not a government grant. But I mean, that's that's an interesting question too. Is is I, I, I want the, like, I'm glad that some people are going to get employed out of this, right? There's yeah. like, it's definitely hard for a lot of black academics to find work uh, yeah. doing research and stuff. And so again, I am sympathetic to that point. Um, but the question is, is the research, since it's being dictated by this like white finance guy, is it being potentially warped? Is it being shaped in the wrong direction? Is the money going to research areas that are not like the priority is this what is you know is is this going to just produce more studies that as some people said in response to my tweet we're just going to sit on a shelf you know gathering dust yeah that might actually be a better outcome than potentially acting on some of the solutions if it is you know this this sort of neoliberal approach one thing that you also always run into with philanthropy when philanthropy is used as a form of public relations so it'd be kind of harvard's way of talking about how benevolent it is as a community actor when harvard really is just Harvard is, as I've heard it described, like a, a hedge fund with a university attached that's going to often be predatory in its predatory in its practices to the wider community, just snatching up land wherever it sees it. And not actually contributing tax money because it's exempt as a non-profit despite right. being filthy rich. Yeah, and, and we did talk about that a little bit in the last segment. They've got this enormous endowment. They've got these workers that are on strike because they're not getting paid living wages. And Greg made some points about, you know, the fact that they seem... It's not like they're going to move Harvard anywhere, but yeah. they sure seem to expect their workers to live right nearby yeah. and also not get paid, you know, at the wages necessary to support that. Obviously, yeah, it was a it was a pithy quick tweet that I fired off and then I added some clarifications and so forth, but like I felt like yeah, it was interesting to watch people sort of react to it because they were all reacting to different little points within mm -hmm. that because again, I mentioned you know, I mentioned the the living wage concept, which we talked about last segment. I mentioned the union. You got these conservatives who were so busy reacting to the fact that they hate Harvard that they didn't stop to realize that meant they were going to be agreeing with the union. Um, you know, and, and then you had people who are saying, you know, 
black poverty. Why has it got to be black poverty? There's white poverty. And it was like, all right, well, you also missed the point. And also, I don't control where the... Yeah. I mean, it was to an African-American study center. So that's not surprising. But it was interesting how, like, everyone seemed to kind of come to their own conclusions about, like, what point I was making. Um, and also, you know, I just want to uh, close on this note. So I definitely had it very easy because uh, I'm a white guy with a white guy photo on my Twitter account. I know for a fact if a black woman had said this, Mm -hmm. if they had posted that exact same tweet, it would have just been days and days of like hate coming at them. So I had it very easy in that respect. Um, And also uh, it was sort of a provocative tweet, but it wasn't like particularly inflammatory. And it certainly wasn't that it wasn't like a quote unquote bad take. You know, that we've seen a lot of these people just kind of posting something to post something and then being like, why is everyone mad at me? So there wasn't that much actual backlash. Like, not a lot of people were too, like, angry at me with it. Um, And so most of the responses were positive, and they're still coming in. I mean, it's hundreds of responses, you know, direct replies or quote tweets or whatever. Um, And I was very cognizant the whole time that this is not real life. And I feel like there's been this other tendency, especially with the people posting sort of inflammatory takes on things, thinking that what they're seeing is is representative of any like as many people as saw my tweet, like the vast, vast majority of Americans did not. My own parents didn't really know that this was happening. Do they even use Twitter? No, they don't. But like, you know, and they don't use Facebook either. But, you know, so it was sort of weird. Like, I think I was mentioning something in front of somebody else. Like, oh, yeah, it's up to, like, you know, such and such count or whatever. And I think my dad was like, wait, really? You know, and this was several days into it. And and it's not real life. And I had the advantage of that I had a whole bunch of things already scheduled that I was doing offline in the real world. Um, you know, somebody had responded to it. And, you know, she invited me to go down to, uh, uh, like, check out what was going on there. So I did do that in person. And then the night before, you know, you and I had met up at a... Mm-hmm. A party for our friend who just got elected to the state house mm-hmm. um, from Cambridge. And, you know, Saturday I was knocking on doors for one campaign in the morning. And then I went up to help another friend for her state rep campaign. And then Sunday I was doing other. So this whole time I've been doing actual, you know, real world political organizing stuff. So I didn't think, oh yeah, I fired off a tweet and solved the problem that took care of it, you know, but also there's this torrent of responses coming in and, and it's so uniform. Nobody, there was almost no original responses in the whole thing. Things After that, like the first five minutes or whatever. Yeah, right? yeah, sure. Yeah. Like, yeah, like there's a couple, you know, because nobody said anything yet. And then, and then after that, it's all stuff that other people have said. And again, it was overwhelmingly agreeing with me or agreeing with some sort of general sentiment within the tweet. This, again, this wasn't harassment. And certainly I wasn't being harassed or anything, but it, I, I kept thinking about how, like, it could look like it was coordinated because of how everyone was just, they weren't looking to see even if there had been replies from me to the tweet. I think sometimes, I've, I've described it like this, I think, to you in private conversation before, is that you, ta- you tap into some sort of, like, latent emotion. Of, a lot of times what I've seen is it's usually been, like, latent animosity towards something. And so maybe some people definitely had some latent animosity towards Harvard that this tweet sort of tapped For into. For sure, yeah. Right. But, and then I, but then I think that you, it's very possible that you also tapped into, like, some other sorts of emotion. And that's why you're sort of seeing this very – I don't want to say completely uniform, but relatively uh, consistent um, – 
response to this is that like there's something that you know was in this 140 characters that really resonated with people in the same way and and i don't know if that's comforting or if it's like sort of scary that we have like all this like group think or whatever or that we think in all the same ways but you know it's just definitely like an interesting phenomenon that we got to sort of like experience i mean i obviously experienced it secondhand um you know over the past couple of days i think it's been really interesting to watch all right, uh, that's going to do it for us this week. Jonathan, thank you for being here in studio. Thank you for inviting me. And Greg, thank you for being on the line. Thanks as always. That's all the time we have this week. Tweet us your comments at AFD Radio or email afdradio at gmail.com. The show is available for download from arsenalfordemocracy.com on Wednesdays. You can also hear it on the air in Delaware from 91.3 FM WVUD, WVUD HD1, and WVUD HD2 Newark every Wednesday night at 6 p.m. Eastern. You can get additional commentary at arsenalfordemocracy.com daily, as well as links to articles discussed today. From my studio in Newton, Massachusetts, I'm Bill Humphrey, and I approve this message. Good night.